Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I'm supposed to thank whoever was going to read that, but since I can't really thank myself, I'll just launch into my notes here. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 34. If you have a device, please click your way there, and we're just going to get right into it. In Psalm 34, the description says, A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now, the reference to this psalm is 1 Samuel chapter 21. And if you read the account, you'll find that the name of the Philistine king there is not Abimelech, like the description says, but is in fact Achish. Now, without getting into the question of whether or not these descriptions were part of the original text and how tenaciously you want to hold on to that, let me just say quickly that there's no reason to think that Abimelech here, which literally just means my father is king, is anything but a title as opposed to a proper name. You know, like Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not the name of the guy. It was probably Amenhotep II, or if you want a later view, Ramses or something like that. But Pharaoh is just a title. Same thing with the name of a Philistine king, Abimelech. Uh, Abraham ran into an Abimelech in Genesis 20. Isaac did also in Genesis 26, and both of those kings returned to the land of the Philistines. So just because the description here says Abimelech, nobody has to panic that it's not the same thing as the person you find in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, moving right along, 
Psalm 34 is an acrostic. That means that each line of the psalm begins with a different Hebrew letter of the alphabet, except for one letter in the middle and except for the last verse of the psalm, which we'll talk about later. But this psalm opens with an invitation for you to join the psalmist in praising the Lord. That's verses 1 through 3. It's followed by a personal testimony, what God has done in the life of this individual, presumably David, in verses uh, 4 through 6, or 4 through 7. And then there's an appeal to the congregation, to you, essentially, to experience God's goodness and provision. That's essentially the first half of what we just read and what we're about to go through. So the psalmist is going to invite you to join him in praising God because of this great deliverance he personally experienced. And then he's going to urge you to experience God's goodness in your own life. That's what he's going to do. Now, how many of you would like to experience God's goodness in your life? More and more hands going up. Okay, good. Well, David's going to ask you that same question, and then he's going to tell you how to do that. And that's what the second half of the psalm is about. So the first half is essentially going to be reasons to praise God, and the second half is going to be instruction. You might call this a kind of teaching poem or something like that. So with that in mind, here we go. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Brock mentioned a few weeks ago that this is called a parallelism. It's essentially just saying the same thing in two different ways. And the psalmist is resolved here to express his own gratitude and joy to God. Verse 2, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. So God is the object of his praise and the humble or afflicted ones are going to hear it and they're going to rejoice in it. Now, why the humble and afflicted? Well, those are the people who can commiserate with the psalmist. Maybe you're one of them. Uh, They are people whose hearts are postured to receive this message and to engage in the joy with the person who is proclaiming it. They've been through the thick of it, so to speak. Don't you have good fellowship with people who know what you're going through? It's the same thing here. Um, As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we must learn to regard people uh, less in light of what they do or do not do and more in regard to what they suffer. So the humble are going to hear this and rejoice. Verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Here's a call to the congregation to magnify, like putting a magnifying glass on God. Now, what does a magnifying glass do other than set leaves on fire and burn ants and stuff? It brings out details, right? That's what it does. So magnify God, who he is, what he has done, and how do you do that? Well, you do that by extending God's reputation. In this context, you do it by the psalmist extending God's reputation about what he has done in the psalmist's life. So you might tell people that God is great, and they know that, but when you tell people what God has done in your life, they realize how great he is, that he shows up personally to help you, not that he's just ethereal out there somewhere. So the main point is that it's because of this deliverance of David that we're going to magnify God in this psalm. That's what he's calling you to do. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. 
and delivered me from all my fears. Now, when you seek someone, usually you find them. You don't say, they answered me. And so that tells me that sought here is just simply a figure of speech. It's referring to earnest prayer. The word here means uh, seeking carefully for, um, a begging, if you will, a prolonged imploration. And the report is that God heard and responded favorably. He answered the prayer. Now, there's no explanation as to what these fears are that he delivered him from, other than the description in the beginning of the psalm there. But I suspect that it's because the point is that God delivered the psalmist from all the fears. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You don't have to say, well, what if I'm going through this? Will God help with this? The point is that, yeah, God can deliver from all of the problems. Those uh, Sorry, that's the theme or the focus. I lost my place. In other words, we're going to see this theme hit over and over, being delivered from all fears. Verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant. Or it could say, the text could read, those who look to him are radiant. That is, uh, they gaze intently at God. That's their focus. And they're radiant. They're, uh, they reflect the joy of his presence. So, there's, there's something about a person that changes when they intently and intentionally seek after God and spend time with him. Kind of like Moses on the mountain in the Old Testament. You remember he comes back down and his face is what? It's a glow. It's shining. He has to wrap a scarf around himself or something like that. And it says their faces will never be ashamed. Uh, the idea is they're going to be preserved. They're going to come out in the end. They're not going to have to wonder uh, what had happened. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. There it is again. The word poor here can mean afflicted, and the psalmist is referring to himself because he's been humbled by life's circumstances. Okay, You could apply this verse to any, any person who finds themselves at a low point in life. So the main point again is the Lord answered this prayer and saved him out of all his troubles. It's a personal testimony, if you will. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So this is the reason David was saved from all his troubles. And notice that he switches gears here from talking about himself to applying this truth to all who fear the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is a title for the Lord himself. It indicates his ever-present protection, especially during times of trouble. He appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16. Um, if you want to see a close-up of this figure, look at the account of the man named Manoah and his wife in Judges 13. So the main point is that this person encamps around. He protects those who fear him. He's ready to help, so to speak. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We reach a crescendo here where David's going to encourage you or exhort you to do two things. And his goal is likewise to get you to trust in God so that you can experience 
God's goodness and provision in your life. First, he says, taste, try out, not just flippantly, but the way that the psalmist does here, seeking with earnest prayer. And the result is that you will see, that is, you will realize by experience. Realize what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, God's goodness is, is a cause that is, it's implying a certain effect, and that effect is provision. That's why it says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you're taking refuge in him, then you're going to see that God provides for you, okay? So what you're doing is you're trusting in God during a time of trouble, and you're going to see that he shows up to help. And that person is blessed because you're seeking asylum in God. That's who's watching over your needs. Verse 9. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Fear is usually defined as a kind of reverence or awesome wonder, holy devotion or something like that, but that's not what David seems to have in mind here, and that's because he describes what fear is in a, in a couple of verses from now, so hold on. But he goes on to say that it's because those who fear God, there is no want or any lack. So the main point is that if you're fearing God, you're not going to be lacking anything that you need specifically. As C.S. Lewis said, he who has God and everything has no more than the person who has God alone. Verse 10 says, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, the young lions here could mean actual animals, or it could mean the strong and rich and oppressive. But in any case, the point is still the same. There's a contrast here between that which is self-sufficient, or at least should be, something that's young and strong, right? They're supposed to be self-sufficient. And you set that up against those who find their sufficiency from God alone. And it says they won't be lacking any provision that they need. Okay, so two brief points. Number one, look at verses 9 and 10. See if you see the connection. In verse 9, there's no lack for people who fear God. And in verse 10, there's no lack for people who seek God. Thus, in this context, there's no difference between the person who's fearing and the person who's seeking. The seeking person is the fearing person. The fearing person is the seeking person. So it's describing the same type of person, even if it's not describing the same type of action. And secondly, Jesus echoed the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said, uh, seek first God's kingdom and all other things will be added unto you. What other things? Well, in that context, Jesus is talking about the things that you need, the things that the Gentiles, the unbelievers would seek and search after intently. Jesus said, God knows you need those. Seek first him, his kingdom, his righteousness, and everything you need is going to be added to you. Same principle. Verse 11. Come, you children, you inexperienced ones, those of you who have not been humbled by life's circumstances and have seen God show up for you. Come and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, how many of you think of David as one of your favorite Bible characters. Anybody? His accounts are fun to read. Have you ever thought it'd be nice to learn from him personally, the man who God says is after his own heart? You can. 
It's right here. This is David's Bible study on what it means to fear God. And it takes less than five minutes, and he gives principles that last us an entire lifetime. So he's going to teach you, if you're willing to listen to him, on what it means to fear God. But first, he's going to ask a rhetorical question, verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? In other words, who's the person that wants the blessed life? full of goodness and blessing as opposed to death and destruction, like Psalm 1, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It's this dichotomy throughout all the Psalms and Proverbs. Who wants that, that you might see good, that you might see God's provision in your life? Well, if that's you, verses 13 and 14, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, to fear God is essentially to do what's right, or in a word, it's to live as a righteous person, a righteous person. It's somebody who walks with God, who who relies on Him. This is the same thing under the Old Testament. Uh, David saying, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, but In Psalm 141, he says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. He needs God's help. Okay? Now, Peter elaborates on this point in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3, he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So that's the fear of the Lord David's talking about here. It's essentially walking in love and obedience with God. Or in New Testament terms, it's living a spirit-filled life, a life empowered and led by God's Holy Spirit. And then he's going to give some principles. Is this, is this worth doing? Do you want to do this? Because most of the time, living, trying to live righteously is rather inconvenient, at least for me. Okay? Well, he's going to explain why to do this. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now, these eyes and ears, these are what's called anthropomorphisms. Anthropos in Greek means man, morphe means form, and anthropomorphism is describing God in the form of a man. Eyes and ears and face and stuff like that, which Jesus said God is spirit, and Paul says in Acts 17, don't do that. God doesn't have these features. But these are figures of speech meant to communicate an idea. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That means God sees the righteous. He's concerned about those people. Okay? His ears are open to their cry. He actually receives their prayers okay? in, a, in a responsive way. God's paying attention to that person. Now, you might say, uh, but Scripture says there's no one righteous, not even one. Right? David says that in Psalm 14. But he also says in Psalm 18 that God's rewarded him according to his righteousness. So which is it? Is there anybody righteous or is there not? You can't have it both ways. 
Well, righteous could mean something like sinless or morally perfect, in which case no human being is righteous except Christ. Or righteous could be used in the sense of simply blameless, like Noah was a righteous person, blameless, okay, or Job. And that's the way that David is referring to people in this text, just people who walk with God. If that's you, you are considered part of the righteous. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So in contrast with the righteous here is the evildoer, the wicked, so to speak. God's face is against them. Face is another anthropomorphism here. God's face is usually a sign of his favor and his blessing, just like the benediction given to Aaron in uh, Numbers when he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. Okay, But if his face is against the evildoer, that means that God opposes that person. And the result of this is that the memory of them will be cut off from the earth. They won't be remembered. They're going to die and be forgotten. Verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. No, here David connects the biblical principle in verse 15 that the the ears of the Lord are open to their cry, to his own personal testimony when he said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. So in verse 15, God's ears are open to the righteous crying out. And then in verse 17, when the righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers. Well, that's what he expected when he said, I cried out to the Lord and he delivered me from all my afflictions. So he tells you what he experienced earlier in the psalm, and then he tells you why he experienced it later. He experienced deliverance, and he experienced that because God delivers people who seek him in times of trouble. Okay, Therefore, he wants you, when you're in trouble, to call out to God. So you'll see his goodness, so you can see God rescue you. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So these folk are essentially those who are rendered helpless because of life's circumstances. The text says God is near to them. One commentator writes on this, the nearness of God is never anything static, anything metaphysically at rest above humans, but a movement emanating from God who intervenes on earth and demonstrates his liberating salutary presence. I don't have any idea what that means. But I suspect what he's saying is that God is actively at work in the lives of those people who are in trouble and who are seeking after God and crying after him, that God's going to show up to help them. I think that's what he's saying. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The righteous person is not exempt from suffering. So the idea is... Uh, Paul says this in the New Testament, right? Those who try to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. So if you're walking with God, generally speaking, you'll have not a few painful experiences or disasters or calamities. But what? But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. This was literally fulfilled at Christ's crucifixion in John 19. The idea is the righteous person is going to be plucked out, removed, 
and he's going to emerge unharmed in the end. Okay, which raises an interesting question. What about the Christian that doesn't seem to emerge unharmed, right? What about the Christian who dies from the affliction of cancer or the car accident or martyrdom or etc.? Well, two things to note on that. First, textually speaking, textually speaking, this is just a general truth. It's not universal law. It doesn't take into account each specific instance of every person. I mean, just Jesus as one example prayed in Gethsemane for deliverance, and he didn't get delivered in that case. So generally speaking, though, this is how God takes care of his people on this side of eternity. And you see it over and over again in the lives of the biblical characters. That's why they're supposed to encourage you, David not least of all. So second, to be delivered through a trial is still to be delivered, biblically speaking. To be delivered through a trial is still to be delivered, nonetheless. In other words, if a person dies from an affliction on this side of the veil, so to speak, it's still the case that biblically that harm is never going to plague you again, okay? And to forget that is to, be, is to forget the very hope that Christ promised, which is what? begins with an R. Resurrection, right? That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that, what? So that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. So that's the good news. God, the good news is that God is going to eventually mend the broken heart. The bad news is he doesn't always or even often prevent it from letting it be broken. So what do you do? Well, that's what David's telling you. Taste and see. Trust in God. He'll get you through it. Even if it killed you, God's going to raise your body back up from the dust. Okay? Verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. This sets up a final contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Starts, starting off with the wicked. Go, God goes so far as to highlight their destiny or the final state of those who are not in a covenant relationship with him. So this is an old covenant idea here, and it spills into the new. Namely, that if you're guilty, you are legally responsible to pay for your sins. So if people didn't repent and make an offering under the old covenant, which merely symbolized that they trusted God for forgiveness, that they would remain in a state of guilt and be responsible to bear their punishment. On the flip side, those who trusted God would be forgiven. They're no longer guilty or liable to punishment because God accepted the offer he stipulated for that covenant. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices are about. That's Leviticus right there. So the destiny of the wicked, the unrighteous person, is that they'll be held guilty because they hate the righteous life. In other words, they hate obedience to God, and they hate those who live obediently to God. That's what the righteous life is. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servant, and none of those who take refuge in him will be ashamed. Last verse. This verse describes the destiny of the righteous, namely those who are in a correct relationship with God. Interestingly, this acrostic that I told you about, it actually ends in the verse before. 
which may, makes this verse kind of stand out as something special. And now it says, the Lord redeems the soul of his servant. It's often a word used to describe Israel's deliverance from Egypt. He redeems it. He buys it back. He restores it or recovers it, something like that. And this describes God's care for his servants, his righteous ones. He delivers them from sin and its consequences. And then it even says, it even gives a view toward their final state, namely, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned or held guilty. And that's Romans 8.1 right there. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, let me close with the main point of the psalm itself, then an applicational point for you and me. The main point is that praise is due to God for the personal deliverance shown to David, which God promises to show all who walk in the obedience of faith to deliver them ultimately from all harm, both temporary and eternal. That's what we just read in those 22 verses, okay? Applicational point. What do you do with that, though? Well, when difficulty arises, commit yourself to God through prayer and obedience, surrendering completely to his way and timing, trusting in his goodness to see you through safely to the end. No matter how the chips fall, that's what you do. And if you're not suffering right now, then in the meantime, what do you do? You praise the Lord along with the psalmist because God still delivers. Okay, we're going to close with a prayer with the words of the Apostle Paul here from Romans 8. Please join me. Lord God, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.